Um, hopefully what we're going to talk about is something a little bit different from what you've already heard about. Um, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised that I was pretty much set up for this talk by some of the other people who've gone before, the nutritionists, the overuse exercise, kind of all coincides with what I'm going to speak about. So eating disorders, to begin with, are biopsychosocial illnesses. So when I say that, it means that they both have biological underpinnings. So current research, we're starting to see that there are actually genetic predispositions, that there are chromosomal mutations that predispose individuals to developing eating disorders. That, that's our kind of biological component. Then we have the psychological component. We have the personalities. We have the temperaments that will also predispose people to developing eating disorders. And then last but not least, we have the social factors, the interpersonal relationships, the uh, social factors that all contribute to it to make this illness. So when we talk about it, we actually talk about several different ones. So the beginning is just going to be an overview. So pretty much when I say eating disorders, every single one of my medical students says anorexia nervosa. It's the one that's most thought about. Well, in reality, it's actually the least common of all eating disorders. So it only is about 1% prevalence rate. And for anorexia nervosa, it's, they usually have a significantly low body weight, but not all the time. So we actually will see people who've gone from a body weight of maybe 200 pounds down to 120 in a year, and they will, for the most part, look like one of my patients who has anorexia nervosa because of that sudden weight loss. The other thing that they have is that they tend to be very preoccupied with their shape and their size, and they have an intense fear of gaining weight. So that's really the challenge for us when we're doing different types of treatments. And there are two subtypes. There is the binge purge subtype, as well as the restricting subtype. So for the restricting subtype, they're not engaging in any type of purging behavior, whether that be vomiting, whether that be the use of laxatives, whether that be um, over-exercise. So for bulimia nervosa, they can, they're usually a normal weight, even they can be a little bit at the upper level of their weight. And what they have is they have these recurrent episodes where they're eating large amounts of food and then they're purging. And the way that they're purging can vary. They can be purging by vomiting. They can be purging by laxative abuse. And more so, you know, they can be purging by over-exercising as well. And so they have these compensatory behaviors and they also have these, this um, focus on their body shape and their body size. And those are the two, so bulimia nervosa is probably about 3% of the population. So those are the two we often think about when we say eating disorders. Well, in the recent years, with the revision of the DSM from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Diseases, from the four to the five, we added two more categories. We added binge eating disorder, which you know, fortunately for us, there have been quite a few athletes, such as Joey Julius, who was the Penn State kicker, who's come out and spoken openly about their eating disorder, their binge eating disorder specifically. So for binge eating disorder, you also have these periods where they, they binge, you know, they eat large amounts of food, they become uncomfortably full, and they feel very guilty, they feel very ashamed, and it's hard for them to talk about, even to physicians, that they're having these episodes. So remember that when you're talking to them, that this is not something that they want to even be speaking about. And then there's a marked distress regarding these this binges, and that's really where the guilt and the shame comes from. And usually it's once, you know, once a week for every three months, and then this one, which is distinct from bulimia, is there, it is not associated with any use of inappropriate compensatory behavior. 
The other one that we see in adults that we used to only see in kids is this avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And most of my medical students don't even know that this occurs in adults. But for the avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, they have significant weight loss. They will have nutritional deficiencies. So sometimes they'll present with neuropathy, you know, from B12 folate deficiency. And then they will have, you know, they will need kind of some nutritional supplement or, um, or something else to help them. And they have marked psychosocial functioning um, inabilities because of all of their nutritional ones. And that's really where it becomes an eating disorder. Um, but they don't have the weight or shape concerns and they have different focuses. Sometimes it's on the texture of food, sometimes it's on the, that you know, eating will make them uncomfortable in their gut. And so that's where this one kind of fits in and is distinct from the other eating disorders in that it doesn't have the body preoccupations. So I get this question all the time. Well, these are psychiatric illnesses. Why are you talking about it? You're an internal medicine doctor. Well, I speak about it because they actually are very medically serious diseases. So eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. So they usually somewhere between five to 10% of patients will die from medical complications. People often think it's from suicide. Actually, only one out of five patients with an eating disorder dies from suicide. Four out of five will die directly from their medical complications. That's why it's really important that you're aware of these. Half of the deaths occur within the first three years of hospitalization. And then obviously, the longer their duration, the more severely ill they are. And so really, early detection, getting them into treatment is going to be the best thing that we can do for them. So what are the different causes of the medical complications? Well, for anorexia and ARFID, it usually is a result of their starvation or their weight loss. For bulimia nervosa, it tends to be more correlated with whatever mode or frequency they're using for purging. And then lastly, for binge eating disorder, it's usually due to metabolic complications from the excessive caloric intake. So that is apart from obesity. Even in our non-obese individuals who have who have binge eating disorder, we know they are at increased risk for cardiovascular complications because of these binging episodes. The really good thing, though, is that most complications are reversible if they're caught early and they're treated. So this is really just to show you that pretty much every organ system in the body can be affected by an eating disorder. So you can have kind of general fatigue, weight loss, you can have you know, oral or dental issues, definitely endocrine issues is one of the predominant ones, gastrointestinal issues, neuropsychiatric issues, cardiorespiratory, dermatologic issues. And I say this because one of the things that's so hard for people to understand is that someone with an eating disorder does not know that they have an eating disorder. So when they come to see me as a primary care physician, they're normally complaining about one of these things, right? They're complaining that they're infertile and they want to have a child, or they're complaining that they're having a lot of gastrointestinal issues. So it's not that they know that they have an eating disorder, so that's what makes it really difficult. Even, even once you start to treat them, there's a lot of denial within it, and that's just inherent in the disease. And that's why I work so hard to kind of combat the denial with my physical exam and with the different things that I do in the clinic just make them understand that their illness is detrimental to their health, and that's why we need to change things. So how do I go about doing that? The first thing I do is I try to get a really good history. What has been their highest weight? What's been their lowest weight? Any recent you know, changes in their weight? 
have they, you know, you know, we used to say for adults that nobody usually loses weight. Like if any type of weight loss is really concerning. Well, that's, you know, to a certain extent, we do know that some people do, but it's only about 5%. So it really is concerning to me if they are. And healthy children should not be losing weight. The other things we talk about is their nutritional history, right? How much have they eaten in the last 24 hours? So I have them write it down. I have them talk about quantities, timing, what motivates them or doesn't motivate them for when they're gonna eat, and any kind of sort of compensatory behaviors. Are they vomiting? Are they using any laxatives? Are they using thyroid supplements? That's one of the huge ones that's starting to come out. Are they you know, using any over-the-counter diet pills? And then we talk about their exercise history. And I have them write it down very specifically. For the last seven days, how long did you exercise for? What was the duration of it? And what was the intensity? And that gives me a very accurate presentation for what's going on. And then also, you know, any current, um, any other type of medications like supplements. So here comes the physical exam. And when I say physical exam, this is what I do in my office. But a lot of you can do this as well. It's nothing, it's nothing that you're not capable of doing in your, in your offices. So what we do is we actually, so I have them lay down first. And I'll take a blood pressure and a heart rate while they're reclining on the table. And then what I have them do is as I'm holding their, their wrist, I have them stand up. And now granted, I make sure that I'm standing in front of them as they do this because I will have patients who will get very dizzy with this and they will start to kind of get wobbly and I want to be there to support them. But that allows me to feel the change in their heart rate directly as they're standing up. And then I'll take a blood pressure again. And it's basically, you know, orthostatic vial, but that really helps to see what their status is. The other thing you can do is some patients will still potentially be bradycardic at that point in time. You can have them run up a flight of stairs for you. What you will see in the eating disorder patients is their heart rate will, will skyrocket. So it will go up much faster than a patient who is not, even though they will tell you, or I'm, you know, I'm really conditioned. That's why my heart rate's low, because I'm great. I'm so athletic, my heart rate's really low. So that's another way that you can do that. The other thing to think about is their BMI. So I'm not a huge fan of BMI. I know it has a lot of faults, but it is important to me to get an accurate weight. I often do it in a hospital gown, and if at all possible, I try to do it, I do it blind, but I also try to do it randomly, right? We know that they're gonna try to water weight. We know that they're gonna try to do all these other compensatory behaviors. So having it be blind and having it be random is the best thing, and it reduces their stress. They're not anxious about it as much, otherwise there's a lot of anxiety that goes into having these weigh-ins. So menstrual cycle is a vital sign. So one of the adolescent medicine physicians actually taught me this as well. And I think this is important because it also goes into the female athlete triad. So what happens now is that we're starting to understand that actually patients, especially female athletes who are younger, will develop amenorrhea prior to them actually even have the large reduction in their weight loss. So getting a good menstrual history can give us a sign that there's actually something else going on. And even in our patients who have binge eating disorder or bulimia nervosa, they are just going to have oligomenorrhea or they're going to have um, other variations in their menstrual cycle. So it's important to kind of get that history as well from because it can give us a heads up that something else worse may be coming. And for the physical exam. So these are just kind of some of the signs and symptoms you can look out for on your athletes that may indicate that there's, some, there's an eating disorder going on. So you will see this loss of body fat or the prominent muscle wasting. So if you watch, you know, you watch TV, you see some of our actresses, you will see how prominent their neck bones are. So you can start to see that as well. 
in some of these, you'll see the um, brody perturbances, the yellow skin discoloration. They'll start to get that because that's the beta keratin actually starting to accumulate under the skin. Then you'll see the lanugo or the fine hair that develops on their arms a lot of the time because they need that to try to maintain their body weight because they've lost all the fat, their body needs to stay warm and the only way it can do that is to start to build up this fine hair. Then you'll see the acrocyanosis. So that's actually what's depicted here. It's a little bit more difficult, but you can see kind of the normal pigmentation in the hand who's examining it. And then you'll see this bluish tinge in the feet of the people right here. The other way to do it is you can have them actually hold their hands really tight, and then you can have them expand, and you look for the capillary refill. And it will tell you how well they're perfusing their extremities. Then you will start to have, you know, you can start to have some peripheral edema. You can look to see whether or not it's hitting or not by pushing on their legs and seeing if it stays. You'll have the parotid hypertrophy up here, or the chipmunk cheeks, as we call it, for people who've been purging a lot. You can have the Russell signs, so depending upon what mechanism they're using to induce purging, you can have the, the abrasions on their fingers, and then you can start to see the erosions in their teeth as well. So that's where sometimes the dentist will give you a heads up, like, hey, I'm a little concerned about what's going on in this particular portion. So what other kind of tests do I do? So, Obviously, one of the things I do is an EKG, just to make sure, and this goes back to what I mentioned about the bradycardia, right? So they all like to say, well, I'm, I have a low heart rate because I'm so athletic. Well, there's actually a whole different physiological mechanism for which patients who are very athletic develop bradycardia and for which my patients with eating disorders do. So they might have began as being that highly trained athlete whose heart has learned to eject the maximum amount of blood with every force, but as they start to go into that negative energy balance, what we see is that their heart is actually trying to preserve all the energy. And we will see, actually, if we do an echo, left ventricular mass loss. So their heart muscle is actually decreasing the same amount that you see for all their muscles all over their body. So their bradycardia is totally different and really indicative of a much more serious issue. You also want to get a bone density for anybody who's been low weight or amenorrheic for the last six months. And for our athletes, bone density should actually be higher. So if they are actually having the nutritional status that is needed for their amount of athletic intensity, their bone density should be higher. So anything where you have a Z-score less than one indicates that there's something going on and that athlete is not getting the nutritional needs that they have. A little bit more about this, and you guys can read this on your own, but the things I wanted to point out that first and foremost for improved bone density is we need to improve nutrition, right? Estrogen therapy is actually shown to only have minimal benefit for bone density. So the thing that I tell all my athletes is, first and foremost, we have to work on the nutrition. Nutrition comes first. Having birth control pills is not gonna be the fix, right? Having birth control pills if you need it, or birth control is okay, but it's not the fix to answer the fact that you have, that you have decreased bone density. You can, however, make sure that they have adequate vitamin D and calcium. I'm an internist. I can't do anything without labs, so I do like to do a lot of different labs. There are a lot here. You can kind of look over them on your own. The things that I really wanted to point out here were, you know, complete metabolic panel, pretty straightforward. Obviously, we want to eliminate any other causes that could be, you know, could be causing their weight loss. We check thyroid function. One of the things that's really interesting, actually, was there was a study done out of France that looks at people who are constitutionally thin versus people who have an eating disorder. Those who are constitutionally thin 
actually had a T3 that was above 2.8. So in those individuals where you're really wondering, is this just their normal body habitus or is this actually an eating disorder, you can sometimes check a T3, um, you know, not diagnostic in and of itself, but it can help you have that additional information you need that maybe will help direct you to what you need to work for next. And then, you know, obviously the sex steroids, I use that at different levels to kind of try to help to motivate my patients, right? I use the bone density to help to motivate them to try to see that they are actually having physiological consequences of it. I use the estradiol levels to show them that this is impacting your pituitary hormones. You're not able to have the right hormones that you need for your body. Last thing I always say, do not be fooled by normal labs. So I have people who come in with BMIs of 13, right? So the, when you look at these labs, they're actually normal values are two standard deviations within the range. So they have to be taken into context. So if I have a patient who's 85 pounds, has low muscle mass, and their creatinine is 1.2, that is way off. That Their creatinine should probably be 0 0.6. So if it's 1.2, even though it may not show up on the lab test as having a red, a red dot that says abnormal, that to me is an indication that they already have 50% less of their kidney function than what they need, and then they're not perfusing their body to give their kidneys that adequate thing. So it all has to be taken into the context. The reason I tell you this is because you will have people who go to urgent care, you will have people who go to physicians, who do not understand this, and they will come back and they will say, but my physician told me that my labs were totally normal. That's, a, that's not the case. Unfortunately, of all the specialties, only adolescent medicine and, and child and adolescent psychiatry are the two medical, medical specialties that are required to educate people on eating disorders. So they just haven't learned about it in their schooling. So for treatment, it really does take a village. It takes quite a few people. It takes a dietitian, it takes a psychiatrist, psychologist, primary care physician, such as a pediatrician, family med, could be a sports medicine doctor, family and friends, it takes athletic trainers, it takes physical therapists. So it takes a village to help support these people to get them to the place where they need to be. You all can kind of go through it on yourself. It kind of lays out exactly what every different member plays a role in for how they all kind of contribute to helping these patients recover. So as I mentioned, I can't talk about eating disorders to lots of people who deal with athletes all the time without talking about female athlete triad. So I'm sure many of you are familiar with this diagram. We talked a little bit about some of the things. We have the functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, we have the bone loss, and we have the low energy availability. And obviously this is gonna occur along a spectrum. So what is great is that if you go to this website, they have all the important documents they need to be able to do this. So even after you leave here, if you, you know, go home and you start to think about it, go to this website, it has all the documents that you need to be able to handle this. Including this, which is the screening questions that they have that they recommend to help you kind of identify people who should, you should start to worry about. A lot of them we already talked about, we talk, you know, the menstrual cycles is a big one in there. You know, do you worry about your weight? Are you focused about your weight? Do other people tell you that you're thin but you feel like you're fat? Have you ever been diagnosed with an eating disorder? Have you ever had a stress fracture? Super important one. And have you ever been told that you have low bone density? So what I love about things is my patients are very concrete. They like, they like definite things. And this is one of them, right? You can calculate a score. You calculate a score and you show them what their score is. What do you want to know whether or not they should 
have clearance for play or be restricted for it. So up here, you know, they tell you how to calculate different scores, and then it allows you to kind of add it all together to figure it out. In reality, when you have to decide are they ready to return to play or not, it's complex. And it, there's a lot that goes into it. And having a good team, having a good physician, having a good therapist, having a good nutritionist who you can all communicate with and figure out is this athlete ready to return, it's really important. The things that I do do with all my athletes is I have them sign a contract. So when the contracts are available actually on that website, and it specifically spells out what it is that I need from them. I need them to continue going to their therapy appointments. I need them to continue to maintain their weight. If we're gonna increase their physical activity, we are gonna to have to increase their meal plan, and they have to be okay with that, because that's the way it works, right? To maintain that energy balance, physical activity goes up, intake is gonna to have to go up. And so they need to know that, and if it's not working, if they're not doing that, then, then they're not gonna be able to stay active. And so I make that very clear to them. We all talk about it, they sign it, they know this before we have them return to play. So there are really three components. Nutrition being the first and the foremost, right? So I cannot work with a starved brain. And I say that to a lot of my patients. The thing that they would love is they want the psychological component first, right? They wanna to go to therapy and they think that one day they're gonna wake up and they're gonna be like, I'm ready to recover. Today's the day, I've worked in therapy long enough, this is it. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. It just doesn't work like that. You have to do the actions for recovery, you have to do the meal plan, you have to restrict the exercise for quite a while before you're able to do the work. So that uncomfortable feeling that they have where they feel like they're gonna explode because they can't maintain this food intake and the non-exercise, that's when you can start to do the work in therapy. That's when the really important thing happens. So you need to have the nutrition first, and then you can have the psychological component. And then in some instances, we have medications that can help with the comorbid kind of depression or anxiety, but there's no magic bullet. There just isn't. You know, we've tried a lot of different ones, we're still working on it, but there's no magic bullet. It's just a lot of time and energy and work. Here are the different levels of care. This is more just for your information so that you can see what different areas that you know we, we might try to figure out. Obviously hospitalization if they're not medically stable, residential or inpatient where they have this 24-7 supervision. So if you're not able to control your purging, you're not able to control your exercising, then I really need you in a facility where you can have the support. And that's how I tell them it, right? It doesn't mean anything. It's not indicative that you're less of a person. It's not indicative that you're a failure because these people are very susceptible to those words. It just means you need more support and I need to find a facility that will provide you with that support while we make these interventions. This is more kind of for whoever the physician is that you're working with. It's the medical admission criteria. It allows them to know that these people need to be in the hospital. They need to be monitored for a while. And one of the big reasons why is that these people are at increased risk for refeeding syndrome. Refeeding syndrome is when your phosphorus drops very low, and that can put you at an increased risk for not being able to breathe. So ATP, it's all dependent upon phosphorus. Our diaphragm does not work without phosphorus. So if those are the people, then they need to be in a facility where we can have them on cardiac monitors, we can monitor their electrolytes closely, at least for the initial period of time while we're there increasing their nutrition. And then these are reasons for escalation of care. So I try to always start patients out and say, okay, let's make these changes. And for some people, they're okay with it, right? You will have those patients who just, for whatever reason, started to kind of get in that vicious cycle while they're exercised too much, they're not eating enough, 
and they don't really realize it. So you tell them, let's get you to a nutritionist, let's come back on the exercise for a while, let's increase the nutritional intake, and we'll see how you do. And they do fine. They're great, right? They're just like, oh, this is so easy. I love this. That's great. They don't really have an eating disorder. They just had kind of that energy imbalance. They do fine. They're the easiest ones to work with. It's awesome. They continue to exercise. We slowly ramp up their exercise. We slowly ramp up their nutritional intake. No problem. It's the other people where you have a lot of the, the psychiatric issues that you have to work with them very closely to get to the underpinning of where it all began. So why do, why do I tell you guys this? Because a lot of you work with adolescents. So if I get somebody into, into treatment who's an adolescent, within the first year, 75% are in partial or full recovery. It's great, right? It's, it's, it's an amazing outcome. If they come to me as an adult, with anorexia nervosa, at nine years, only 32% are in recovery. At 22 years, only 63% are in recovery. At, at nine years for bulimia, 68% are in recovery, but that's pretty much it, it levels out. And this was a study that was done in Boston, came out recently in 2016. So, so when they're younger, we have to intervene. We have to get them the treatment that they need in order to have the outcomes that we want because we just we know that the family support, we know that when they're younger, they don't have the same disabilities. If I have a patient who's gonna go off their parents' insurance, I am incredibly, um, and, and I just, I tell them they have to go and they have to go now because once they get older, if they go on Medicaid, I can't send them to treatment. Treatment's expensive. And in most, you know, in some insurances, like we can get some coverage from, but definitely without insurance, you can't get coverage. So it's really important, not only for the medical reasons, but also for the fact that when they're younger, the outcomes are better. You know, there are three nonprofits within the Dallas area I work with. There's the Something for Kelly, there's the Morgan Foundation, and then there's the Elisa Foundation. All three of them are named after people who have lost their daughter to an eating disorder. The thing that's really scary is that uh, Elisa and Kelly were both just found in the morning by their parents dead. So they basically had an electrolyte abnormality, it caused an arrhythmia, and they died. They weren't even underweight. So when I tell parents your, your child has eating disorder, and they're like, oh, it's not really that big of a thing, we can take care of it later, it's okay. I'm like, no, it's not, it isn't, because I don't know that your child's not gonna be the one that doesn't wake up tomorrow. So we have to take care of it now. And if your child had cancer, you wouldn't tell me that, right? I'm telling you there's a 10% mortality rate, so we need to take care of it, and we need to take care of it now, and this is how we need to handle it. The thing that I think is really wonderful is I can tell you kind of all these things about eating disorders, but it really takes having a personal perspective, having known somebody who struggled with it, or having had somebody as courageous as Catherine is here today who's gonna share her story with you for you to really understand exactly what it's like to live with one of these illnesses. So I'm gonna pass it off to Catherine so she can tell you a little bit about what she's been encountering. All right, well, um, I was diagnosed with anorexia binge purge subtype. Um, I've been in recovery for the last year. Prior to that, I was in and out of treatment for two years, and I've been struggling with disordered eating for most of my life. There are many different lessons I have learned from my personal struggle with an eating disorder. The first one is that eating disorders are not a choice. This is a misconception that people choose this disease. I didn't wake up one morning and decide to choose a life-threatening illness, ruin my body as much as someone that has diabetes choose to have diabetes. Okay, it works. Uh, the second is that you cannot tell if someone has an eating disorder by just looking at them. 
If you looked at me, I was normal weight. I wasn't a fragile, bare-boned person that people have a misconception when they think about anorexia. During the last time I was sick, I had some serious medical complications such as syncope, orthostasis, and bradycardia. None of which happened at work. I was still functioning at work, so in my head, I wasn't sick enough to receive treatment. The third, behaviors are often perceived as healthy can be deleterious. Uh, people would praise me on my commitment to diet and exercise, and those behaviors resulted in serious medical complications. I also craved those praises I got too. I tried many, uh, multiple other diets and training regimens. I knew that these were dangerous for my body and did not care. Later, I used multiple supplements, appetite suppressants, and thyroid stimulants. I was addicted to running. I started at just three miles were sufficient, but six miles were better. I ultimately was running 20 plus miles with little nutrition. I was obsessed with logging every calorie burned and every calorie consumed. Some people would praise me when they saw my results, not realizing there were serious cardiovascular complications. Eventually, my body couldn't run anymore because of the damage that I have inflicted. Fourth, eating disorders are more than, more than about the food. They're about emotional regulation and about self-esteem. I use exercise to escape all my emotions. Recovery entails developing self-esteem and finding worth in self. Um, my road to recovery has been long, but here's what recovery is. It's challenging. Despite wanting to recover when I went to treatment the first time, I quickly discovered my eating disorder was strong and persistent. My old behaviors like exercising excessively and weighing multiple times per day quickly crept in. Despite my treatment team encouraging me to go back into treatment, I convinced myself I wasn't, I, since I, wasn't, I was still functioning, I wasn't sick enough. It's a 24-7 day job. In addition to whatever job you have, recovery requires you to work all the time, such as setting, setting alarms for snacks and making time for appointments. It's a long process. Although eating disorder took me to rock bottom, recovery has helped me build myself up again. It's realizing this is not gonna happen overnight even though you wish it would. It's realizing I will have bumps in the roads but that it will be okay as long as I move forward. It's breaking down the diet mentality. It's, um, I had to learn to give, my give, my uh, give myself permission to eat everything and anything I wanted. When I categorize food as good and bad, it's set up the all or, diet, all or nothing diet mindset. That as long as I followed my meal plan, food was okay to eat. It's learning to ask for support. Being able to have friends that validate and accept me has been incredibly constructive in my recovery. That may, they may not understand eating disorders, but they would validate my thoughts, and that in turn was extremely constructive. I wanted to share this story with you because it's not about me. It's about the patients you see in the clinic or in the training room. Eating disorders can happen to anyone, even someone like me, who has a degree in athletic training, license, and certification. I hope you're able to take your, take, oh, if I can talk, if you're able to take your, to your setting the experience what I've shared today. So I think most of these, you guys, you guys.
negate the fact that it is incredibly difficult and, and very brave of, of Catherine to sit up here and, and talk about something that is uh, very personal and very challenging. So I think we really hit on a lot of these points during the presentation. I know it's the end of the day and everybody's dying to get out of here. I have cards with me. I'm always welcome. My, they have my cell phone on it. They have my email. Um, I, I always love to take questions. Um, and, and please feel free to contact me if you have any concerns or if you need some direction to where to send them. I do have colleagues in the area, um, who, as well as dietitians, as well as therapists, who I would love to, to help you kind of direct your athletes to. So, thank you. Does anybody have any questions for her before? Um, the question that I have, two quick ones. What age do you typically see the onset? May it be diagnosed or maybe not even aware of? Secondly, on some of your um, slides, you indicated that there could be potential males having this problem. Absolutely. And I have always assumed it was mostly females, so could you please address it? Male sure. children, they have the, the beginnings of the Absolutely. So those are two wonderful questions. Let me repeat them just to make sure. So the first one being is what age of onset? So the predominant age of onset is adolescence we've always heard about, right? So we're talking usually around the ages of 11 to, you know, to 16 is when we've always traditionally heard about it. More and more now that we're seeing that they're occurring younger and younger, we will have patients six, you know, six years old and actually ending up in treatment for their eating disorder. So it can happen across the spectrum. And we will actually have women who are in their middle age who are now coming forward who were never treated before, maybe just newly developed their eating disorder. So it can happen at any age. You know, it does predominantly happen in the adolescence, but it can. Second question is a great one, and I should have hit on this more so. Um, I had taken out a couple of slides because normally I speak for an hour, so it was a little bit shorter time frame for me, is that males do. So the old estimates used to be that 10% were just males, but that was actually a study that is not very good. Epidemiological studies in eating disorders are incredibly difficult because they're self-report. And as I mentioned to you, it's a mental illness because they don't know they have an eating disorder. So you're self-reporting something that you don't know you have, so it makes it really difficult for us. Now we're starting to see the frequency in males to be much higher. I would say in our clinic at UT Southwestern, the frequency of males is 50%. 50% of them are coming in who are men who have eating disorders. So it can absolutely occur in both sexes, and it is not just the adolescent female. Um, and it occurs across all socio-demographic. Um, so I have them at, pay, at Parkland. You know, I have them in the you know at our. our um, at our you know, community hospital in Dallas that come in with eating disorders. So you don't have to be the affluent teenage female that's gonna have an eating disorder. So it's a very important thing and I'm happy that you pointed those out. Yeah, right here, because I've got the mic. So you, right behind you. Oh. You talked, and I'll get, I'll get you Jill. You talked about males at 50% in your clinic. Is there, are you seeing a difference between the average everyday male versus the male athlete in eating disorders there? So I do. So I think that the men tend to have a little bit more of the bodybuilding ones. So they really are kind of getting into those online things that you can see about, you know, they're very much into the meal prep. So they spend their weekends doing the meal prep and they're, you know, they have a lot of the supplements and they're really into kind of fixated on their body type as being more masculine. So that's really where you have to, to work at it a little bit differently. And obviously, you know, as, 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 um, as Brett mentioned a little bit, you do worry about those patients who start by trying to regulate their weight and they have those binging, and we know that actually purging, so purging actually causes endorphins in your body to release, and it can be a high. I know it's hard to believe if you're like, I can't even imagine that for me, but, but it can cause endorphins to release, and it can be a high, and it can almost be addictive for some people. So something that started out as just them trying to meet their weights can actually turn into a very serious disorder. So you have to be kind of aware of that with those, with those different athletes. 
was just that my question was very similar to what he was going to ask in regards to those athletes, male and female, that have to make a weight for their sport, or like our previous one of our previous presenters, you're talking about, you know, losing safely and gaining safely. Did they have that mindset about all that? Do you do you find in your practice that that tends to contribute? the potential for people that have eating disorders? I do, right. I mean, I'm hesitant for anybody, as I mentioned in the very beginning, that we understand now there's a genetic predisposition and then there's these personality factors and then you have them start a behavior, whether or not they started a behavior just to be healthy, which we see, right? I mean, I, as I mentioned, I had that patient who was 200 pounds who became 120 and she's like, everybody loved it. They told me how awesome I was. They told me I was becoming so much healthier, but then she actually had nutritional deficiencies, like she had neuropathy, you know. When we finally got her into the hospital, her FOS was less than three. It was undetectable in our measures. So it can become very serious, and so that's why I always am hesitant for any type of weight loss regimen is because, you know, I, I try to, I'm not saying that everybody is healthy at every size, but I think that there, there's a spectrum and you have to be aware. You have to be aware that when some people are gonna adopt these behaviors, they may have those predispositions that make them more susceptible to these illnesses and so you have to have an eye up. You have to just kind of be aware of your athletes, what's going on in their lives to see if they're not starting to trend into that very dangerous zone. I have a question. You mentioned temperature because as you were talking, I was sitting here thinking about athletes that I think potentially have it and on our medical history form we have their blood pressure and we screen for EKGs and I'm thinking about all these tools that we have. Mentioned temperature and hypothermia. So, in a lot of the underweight patients, they will become hypothermic, and that's where I mentioned kind of the lanugo and they're actually the decreased heart rate, their bradycardia is because their body is trying to preserve all of its temperature. So, one of the great questions I ask my athletes is, I'm like, hey, do you remember when it was colder outside, especially my runners? I'm like, and, she, and they'll be like, yeah, actually, that one meet, it was like 70 degrees, which I think the rest of us would probably think sounds like a really nice run. And she's like, I did my worst. My worst run was when it was 70 degrees, so they're very susceptible to the temperature. They'll be in your office, and they'll be like, it's so cold, right? I mean, it's like the air conditioning, and they're like, I'm, I'm shivering, I'm starting to develop goosebumps, and so they, they very much are hypothermic, so that can be another clue that they, that they have kind of that negative energy balance. But you didn't you can, absolutely. So one of the criteria to admit to a hospital is the hypothermia, so I believe it's less than 96. I'm cautious about that, so I don't know about you. At my hospital, they do those forehead ones, and everybody's hypothermic. <laughs> so it's a little bit harder to gauge. Like, really, it's meant to be a rectal temperature if you're worried that somebody is that hypothermic, which we never usually do. So it's a little bit harder, but definitely resting temperature. And the other thing to think about when I mentioned bradycardia is that I actually lay my patients down, go get the machine, come back with the EKG machine, and do the EKG, because their heart rate's going to drop really fast. And so once they've been laying down for a little bit, you get a much more accurate one than when they're just walking into the room and sitting down. So you're not using like, pulse ox? No, not necessarily. So the oxygen, they can. The other thing to think about with pulse ox is that because of their poor capillary refill, their pulse ox is actually gonna measure really low. So you have to be aware of that as well. So sometimes we'll actually even have to use their ear in the hospital to get a decent pulse ox. No, no, no. That's what, so it is, so it is very, it is, it's very complex in those issues. Great, well we just really want to thank Brooks and Catherine.